It's good to be together this morning. Appreciate this time that we've been able to spend in worship together. I appreciate you as a church family, especially over the last couple of weeks. I feel like I would be amiss if I didn't begin by saying thank you. Thank you for all of the ways that you have supported and encouraged and prayed for me, Leslie, Anna, and the rest of our family. We appreciate that so much. There's too many people to name. There's so many different things that have been done. I don't think that I could name them all right now, but know that I appreciate you and I appreciate being a part of this church family so much. We're going to be in Micah the sixth chapter this morning. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there to the minor prophet Micah, and we're going to be not only this week, but also, Lord willing, the next time that we come together, we're going to be spending some time in verses one through eight. Micah chapter six, verses one through eight. I'm sure that all of us are familiar in a variety of different ways with having to meet various requirements. One of those ways is in the laws that we have to obey. Maybe you've heard of this before, maybe you haven't heard this before, but when you look at the United States as a whole, there are actually some pretty odd laws that have been passed and put into place. There are some pretty odd requirements that states have put on people. Let me share just a few of those with you. In the state of Washington, it's illegal to kill Bigfoot. And if you kill Bigfoot, you're going to have to spend at least five years in prison. So that's something good to know if you're going to go hunting in Washington. In Virginia, I know that some people in Kentucky might cringe about this, but in Virginia, it's illegal to hunt on Sundays unless you're hunting raccoons. Now, I don't know what raccoons did to deserve that, but that's the rule that was passed and in effect for a really long time. In Vermont, it's illegal to stop somebody from putting up a clothesline. I don't know why you would stop somebody from putting up a clothesline to dry their clothes, but it's illegal to do that in the state of Vermont. In Oklahoma, it is against the law to eavesdrop on somebody else's conversation. If I lived in Oklahoma, I would probably be in jail because I've broken that a number of different times. I'm sure that some of you have as well. In New Jersey... It's illegal to wear a bulletproof vest while you're murdering somebody else. I guess that takes away a, a level of self-defense. In Minnesota, you can only play bingo two times per week. In California, if you enter a frog into a frog jumping competition, which I didn't even know existed, if that frog dies in that competition, you're not allowed to eat it. And then here's one that you need to know. Here's one for the state of Kentucky. It is illegal in the state of Kentucky to bring reptiles into religious services. So that's something that, that you need to know if you try to bring a snake in here on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, or even Wednesday night. We're going to have to make sure that law uh, is still in effect. We'll have to probably call the police on that one. Don't, don't bring your reptiles when you come to this assembly. When you look at the United States as a whole, as we said, some pretty odd laws. So some of them are still in effect. Some of them are no longer in effect. But if you're going to live in those states, those are the requirements that you have to abide by. Well, as Christians, we recognize far more important than any requirement that a state might have are the requirements of the Lord our God. Far more important. Far more significant than anything that a state government or even a national government might require us to do is what the Lord our God requires us to do. This morning, we're going to think about a question. 
I believe that this is a very important question. In fact, I don't think that there's a question out there that's more important than this one. This is a question that is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. What does the Lord require of me? What does the Lord require of you? I believe that's a question that's asked, considered, and most importantly, I believe that's a question that's answered when we look at the text of Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So let's consider this question together. And as we said, not only this week, but Lord willing, the next time that we have the opportunity to come together on a Sunday morning, we're going to think about this very important, very significant question what does the Lord require of me? And what does the Lord require of you? This morning we're going to give two answers to that question from the text of Micah chapter 6. Number one, what does the Lord require of me? And what does He require of you? He requires us to respond to His goodness with faithfulness. You find that in the first five verses of chapter 6. Before we get into that though, when we look at the book of Micah as a whole, when we think about the context of the book of Micah, of course the prophet who God is speaking through here is Micah. His name literally means, who is like the Lord. It's a beautiful name. It's an amazing name. A name that emphasizes how unique God is. It's a name that emphasizes there's nothing else in all of creation. There's nobody or nothing in the entire universe that is like our God. He is in a category completely all His own. When we think about Micah and the time that he lived, he lived about 700 years before Jesus. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the prophet Isaiah. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. When you look at the first verse of the book, we find who he's speaking to. He's speaking to both the northern kingdom of Israel, consisting of ten tribes, whose capital city was in Samaria, He's also speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah consisting of two tribes whose capital city was in Jerusalem. But when you read through the book, it seems that he's primarily concerned with the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where he was from personally. Looking at the book of Micah as a whole, Micah's concerned with a number of different things. But when you look in Micah chapter 6, verses 1-8, through specifically we find the question, what does the Lord require of me? Living 700 years before Jesus, he lived in a time where Israel was prospering in a number of different ways. Israel prospered economically. Their military was very strong. They were experiencing success in so many different areas. They had a lot of different things going for them from a physical perspective, but the problem, as you can imagine, is that they didn't have a lot going for them from a spiritual perspective. This is a time period where there was a lot of prosperity physically, but not spiritually. The children of Israel were choosing to live in sin. They were choosing to live in apostasy. They were choosing to live in disobedience to God. And that's the reason why when you look at Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is indicting Israel. He's contending with Israel. He's disputing with Israel. It's like God is bringing them into a courtroom. He's bringing a lawsuit against them. In this passage, God is depicting Himself as the prosecutor. Israel is the guilty defendant on trial. The witness in this courtroom, the witness in this lawsuit, is all of creation. 
You find that in verse number 2. He mentions the mountains and the hills up high. He mentions the enduring foundations of the earth down low. Who are the witnesses to Israel's sin, their rebellion, their evil against the Lord? It's all creation. From the mountains up high to the foundations of the earth down low and everything else in creation in between are called as witnesses against the sin of Israel. As the prosecutor, God questions guilty Israel. You see that in verse 3. Notice the first three words. Oh my people. As God speaks to Israel, as He questions Israel, this is not something that's cold. This is not something that's without care. This is not something that's without concern. Can you hear the emotion and the love, the care in God's voice as He addresses Israel in verse number 3? Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Their God is asking the question that a parent might ask of a rebellious teenager. God is asking the question that a spouse, a husband or a wife might ask when their spouse chooses to leave them, to be unfaithful to them and to pursue somebody else. Israel, what have I done to you? How have I hurt you? How have I wronged you? How have I harmed you to make you do this to me? To make you leave me? To make you disregard my word? What have I done to you to make you hate me? And to turn your back on me? God demands an answer. We talk about pleading the fifth in our country. This is not a situation where Israel could plead the fifth. He asks the question, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you to make you leave me? To turn your back on me? And then he says, answer me. What is the answer? What had God done to Israel to make them leave? How had God harmed or hurt or wronged Israel to make them completely disregard Him and disregard His Word, disregard His commands and expectations? Well, you continue reading into verses 4 and 5 and you find the answer. The answer is that God had not hurt Israel. God had only helped Israel. God had not harmed Israel in any way. Instead, He had poured out blessing upon them in every way. God had not done anything wrong to them. In fact, all that God had done to them was right and holy and good. He goes back into the past. He goes back hundreds of years and He picks out specific examples where He had been so good to His people Israel. For instance, look at verse number, number 4. He talks about how He brought them out of the land of Egypt and redeemed them from the house of slavery. He, in the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 12, He's bringing them out of a slavery that was so oppressive to them. That caused so much suffering in their lives. He gave them leadership at the end of verse number 4. A, a trio of siblings. Moses was their leader, their lawgiver, their prophet. Aaron handled the religious, the, the religious ceremonies. He was their first high priest. Miriam was a prophetess, the sister in that trio. That was a gift that God gave to Israel. That was one of the ways He blessed them with leadership. And then you go into verse number 5. This steps in, if you want to read more about this, spend some time this week in Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 24. When King Balak commanded the prophet Balaam to curse the children of Israel, God caused Balaam to bless the children of Israel. And that's an example of what God had done for them, not just in that specific occasion, but throughout His entire relationship with this nation. He did not curse them. He only blessed them. And then at the end of verse 5, Micah talks about how God brought them into the promised land. 
He brought them from the city of Shittim, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, to the city of Gilgal, which is on the western side of the Jordan River. He brought them into a land that he describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. You want to summarize everything that God had done for Israel? You could do it with just one word. There at the end of verse number 5, it's the word righteous. God had not harmed Israel. He had not hurt Israel. He had not done anything wrong to Israel to cause them to fall into apostasy. All of God's acts towards Israel were righteous. He wanted them to know. He wanted them to remember the righteous acts of the Lord. But what about Israel's acts? They weren't righteous, were they? They were unrighteous. They were evil. They were wicked. They were sinful. And that was the problem. That's the problem in this passage of Scripture. God had been so good to Israel in so many different ways, at so many different times. How did Israel respond to God's goodness? Disobedience, unfaithfulness, ingratitude, and sin. You want to put it simply? Israel took God's goodness for granted. What should they have done? Oh, they should have looked back in their past. They should have looked back in their Scriptures and been overwhelmed by the goodness of their God. They should have been so grateful for the goodness of their God and recognized without His goodness, we wouldn't even be here. Without His goodness, we wouldn't even exist. We wouldn't even be alive today. They should have had an attitude that says, look at how good God has been to us. How could we not serve Him? How could we not love Him with everything that we have? How could we not be who He wants us to be and do what He wants us to do? They should have looked at God's goodness in the past and allowed that to motivate and create faithfulness in the present. But they didn't. Instead, they took God's goodness for granted. What about us? What does the Lord require of you and what does the Lord require of me? He requires us to respond to His goodness with faithfulness. It was a few weeks ago, I read a story from a man named Joe. He was remembering his mother. How every afternoon, she would spend several hours in the kitchen preparing dinner for the entire family. Him, his father, and his ten siblings. He remembers one particular night when they went to sit down at the table. The, the table was ready. All the plates were put down. The glasses were there. The silverware was there. But when they sat down, they very quickly noticed that there wasn't food on their plates. Instead, on each plate was a big pile of hay. So the father was the first one to speak. He sat down. He looked up at his wife and said, Honey, what's all of this hay doing on our plates? She threw up her arms and said, finally, somebody noticed. This is the first time that any of you have ever said anything to me about what I've put on your plate. Can you see the point of that story? So often as people, we take things for granted, don't we? We take people and relationships for granted. We take our family and friends for granted. We take our good health for granted. The fact that we laid our heads down on a pillow last night and then raised them up this morning, we take that for granted, don't we? The breath that you're breathing right now into your lungs and out of your lungs, do you ever take that for granted? The fact that you even had a pillow to lay your head down on last night, 
do we ever take that for granted? Maybe we can look at our lives and if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we do take things for granted sometimes. Here's the question though. Do we ever take God for granted? Do we ever take the goodness of God for granted? We have to know who we're talking about here. This is the God who has given to us every good and perfect gift in James 1 and verse number 17. This is the God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that beautiful? This is the God who made us in His own image and created both male and female in His likeness in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. This is a God who didn't just create us physically, but He's created us again spiritually in Christ, made us into a new creation where the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. We oftentimes sing the song, I guarantee that you know it, it might even be the case that some of our kids sang this song just a few moments ago in Bible class. God is so good. He's so good to me. Michael wants to ask the question, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the goodness of God in our lives? Do we respond like the Israelites? In gratitude? Complacency? Disobedience? Unfaithfulness? Or do we respond being overwhelmed by the goodness of our God? Grateful for the goodness of our God. Having a mindset and attitude, if that's how good God has been to me, if that's how God has blessed my life, then how could I not serve Him? How could I not love Him with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength? How could I not be who He wants me to be and do what He wants me to do? Do we allow God's goodness in the past and in the present to be a motivator for faithfulness in our lives? Because that's what the Lord requires. The Lord requires us to respond to His goodness with faithfulness. And then the second idea that I want us to mention this morning comes from verses 6 and 7. The Lord requires of you and I more than ritual. He requires more than worship. Notice how that's laid out in the text. We said back in verse number 3 that God is questioning guilty Israel. He wants to know, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Notice how Israel responds in verse number 6. Israel, as the guilty defendant on trial, they respond to God the prosecutor with four questions of their own. Look at the first one. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? God is questioning them about their unfaithfulness, about their disobedience, about their ingratitude. What's the question that the Israelites ask in response? What do you want from us? When we come before you, when we bow before you, it's the question up on the screen. What do you require of us? What do you want from us? What are you asking of us? When the Israelites think about what the Lord requires of them, where does their mind automatically go? You keep reading in verse 6 and verse 7, their minds automatically go to external ritual. The sacrifices that they would offer. The worship that they would give to God. Even notice the first question. Notice the wording of it. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? They respond to God's questioning by saying, okay, when I come to worship, what do you want me to bring? What do you want me to fill my hands with? What kind of sacrifices do you want me to make? Notice as they list the potential sacrifices that they could offer, notice the progression. 
Verse number 6, Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Would that please you, God? Well, if that wouldn't please you, what about verse 7? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? If that's not enough, do you want us to fill ten thousands of rivers with oil and offer that to you? Well, if that's not enough, if that's not going to please you, what about this at the end of verse 7? This is the ultimate extreme, isn't it? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Now, God never condoned that. In fact, God gave commands against parents offering their children to Him. But that's the question that they're asking. Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? When the Israelites think about what God requires of them, when they think about the Lord's requirements, what do their minds automatically go to? They think about ritual. They think about worship. They think about sacrifice. Perhaps even depicting God as one who is too hard to please. Is that what God wants in this text? Is God content to say, Okay, just offer some sacrifices, go through this ritual, offer some worship, and we're going to be good. Everything's going to be cleared up. Well, no, you keep reading into verse number 8, and Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And this is what we're going to think about the next time we come together. Micah lists three things there, and guess what? None of those have anything to do with ritual. None of those have anything to do with worship or sacrifice. Instead, they have everything to do with a person's relationship with God and a person's relationship with other people to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. So is God saying in this text that He doesn't want their worship? He doesn't want them to go through ritual? He doesn't want them to offer sacrifices? Well, no, I don't think that's the message. Because that would contradict other passages that we have in the Old Testament, right? Where God is commanding them to make certain sacrifices in a certain way on certain occasions. The message is not God doesn't want their worship or their ritual. The message is that God wants more than their worship. God wants more than their ritual. God doesn't just want them to come before Him in worship. He wants them. He wants their hearts. He wants their lives. He wants their desire. He wants their obedience. In this passage, God is not asking for a certain quality of worship to fix this problem. God is asking for a certain quality of life. A life that is submitted to Him in obedience. God's not asking for them to come with their hands full of sacrifice if their hands are dirty from sin. It's not that God doesn't want their worship at all, period, end of story. It's that God doesn't want their worship if they're going to continue living in the way that they're living. God wants more than their worship. They could offer as many sacrifices as they want to offer. They could go through as much ritual as they want to go through. It never fixed the problem. And it would always be hollow and meaningless until they fixed the sin that was present in their lives. God required of them more than just ritual. More than just worship. He required everything that they had. Every moment of every day. What does the Lord require of you and me? Do you think that this is a message that the Lord's church needs to hear today? The Lord requires of you and me more than just ritual. 
more than just worship. Makes me think of a story about two kindergartners. Let's name them John and Sally. Sally came home to her parents one day after school and said, do you remember John from my class? I said, yeah, we remember John from your class. What about him? She went on to tell her parents that she and John had gotten married that day on the playground. So the parents, of course, they were laughing to themselves. They, they wanted to continue the conversation. Well, how do, you, how do you know that you and John got married today? What did you do to get married on the playground? She said, well, we were swinging next to each other on the swings. And we reached out and held hands. That means now that we're married. Of course, we understand. There's a whole lot more to marriage than just holding somebody's hand on the swing, right? But that was all it was in her mind. If you want to get married to somebody, you hold their hand on the swing. While holding hands is occasionally going to be a part of the marriage relationship, it's not all that marriage is. And the same is true with the Christian life and worship. If you were to ask Christians this question up on the screen, what does the Lord require of me? I guarantee you that some Christians would answer that question saying, God requires me to be at worship. God requires me to be at church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. So often, the only times that a Christian exercises their Christianity is in an assembly like this one. In a worship service like this one. Think about the way that we talk. Is that person faithful to the Lord? Well, that person's only been to church two weeks out of the last eight weeks. How's your church doing? We had a bigger number this week than we had last week, so we must be doing pretty good. What does that show? We determine a person or even a congregation's faithfulness to God based on the number of people that come to church. The number of people that come to worship. And the plea of the book of Micah is that God requires more than that. Now, let's go back and, and give a little disclaimer here. Is worship an important part of the Christian life? It is. Let's take that a step up. Is worship, coming to an assembly like this one, an essential part of the Christian life? Of course it is. We know what the Bible teaches in passages like Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. We're not to fall into the habit of neglecting to meet together as the body of Christ. Have you fallen into that habit? Neglecting, forsaking the times when we come together as the body of Christ? I want to suggest to you that if you're able... When these lights are on and there are people in here worshiping or studying the Word of God, you need to be here. Again, take it a step up. If you're able, when these lights are on and there are people in here worshiping God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you should want to be here. Especially when we look back at how good God has been to us as we talked about just a few moments ago. When we truly see the goodness of God in our lives, we should have a mindset that says, where else would I be? If, if my brothers and sisters are worshiping God, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to praise Him and glorify Him and draw closer to Him for all that He's done for me. And to do that with people who love me just like Jesus does, that's something that we should want more than anything else. So, so don't walk away from this point thinking that worship is optional because it's not. It's an essential and important and a significant part of the Christian life. But here's where we're talking from the book of Micah. Is worship all that there is 
in the Christian life? And I think we have to answer that question by saying no. Just like there's a whole lot more to marriage than just holding somebody's hand, there's a whole lot more to the Christian life than just going through the ritual, coming to a worship service, and offering sacrifices to God. It's not that God doesn't want your worship. It's that God wants more than your worship. God wants you. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants everything that you have. God doesn't just want you on Sunday mornings. He wants you every moment of every week. God, in this passage, is not asking for a certain quality of worship. First and foremost, He's asking for a certain quality of life. If we don't have that quality of life, then our worship is going to be hollow and meaningless anyways. You can spend as much time in this building as you want to spend. You can worship as much as you want to worship. You can offer as many sacrifices as you want to offer. But until we fix the sin that's present in our lives, again, that worship is always going to be hollow and it's always going to be meaningless. God doesn't want our hands full of sacrifice if they're dirty from sin. Worship is an important and essential part of the Christian life. But it's not all that the Christian life has to offer. It's not the only responsibility that we have to make. Coming into an assembly like this one should not be the only time that we exercise our Christianity and we live in relationship with God. God wants more than your ritual. He wants more than your worship. He wants you. And He wants me. That's what the Lord wants. Requires. Can you see how this is an important question? What does the Lord require of me? As a Christian, as one who has dedicated my life to following in the footsteps of Jesus, what are the requirements of the Lord my God? Here are two of them. He requires us to respond to His goodness with faithfulness. And He requires more than just ritual. Of course, as we said, we're going to come back, Lord willing, the next time that we have the chance to study together. And we're going to look at verse number 8. Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8. A very well-known verse. We're going to continue thinking about this question. We're going to continue this conversation about what the Lord requires to see what Micah has to tell us there. But until then, I want to give you the encouragement to give God what He requires. This week, take some time to reflect on and be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And in gratitude, live to serve Him every day and in everything that you do. Recognize that God wants your worship. I want to challenge you that if you're able, be here every service that we have this week. I think that's going to bless your life. But here's something that will be an even greater blessing. Give God more than just the ritual. Give God more than just the worship. Give God everything that you have every moment that you live. If we can help you to do any of that this morning, we'd love to. It'd be our privilege. Just make that need known as together we stand and sing.
Facing the sentence of life or of death, what will that sentence be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Now is the time to prepare, my friend. Make your soul spotless and free. Washed in the blood of the crucified one. 